Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. This episode of Systematic is brought to you by PDF Pen 7, your Swiss Army knife for PDFs. More information at smilesoftware.com slash systematic. And 1Password, the best tool for staying safe online. Find out more at onepassword.com slash systematic. That's the number one password.com slash systematic. My guest this week is Jamel Bowie. He's a chief, he's the chief political correspondent for Slate Magazine and an analyst for CBS News. And he has work published in The Daily Beast, The American Prospect, The Washington Post, The Nation, and more. How's it going, Jamel? It's going pretty well. Thank you for having me on the podcast. You're a pl- prolific writer. I yeah, I read a lot, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and a speaker too, right? That's right. Um, I I actually was just in New Hampshire. I want to say a week ago or a week and a half ago, talking to a bunch of high schoolers. Which, if anything, will make you feel extremely old. It is talking to a bunch of high schoolers, and and they keep looking younger, don't they? They really do. It's it's actually shocking to me how young high schoolers look because I I don't remember looking or feeling that young when i was like 18 but in fact an 18 year old is basically a child do you remember when you were 13 and you thought 18 year olds were totally adults <laughs> i remember not only do i remember that but i remember when i was in college i was a camp counselor for two summers and i, I must have been 20 or 21 um and my campers were 13 and 14 and for them, pretty much anything older than 18 might as well be 50. Like, there's no – it's all compressed. Like, the, your age matter is like – there's no sense of how old you might be. So you're, if you're 13 and you, you, you yourself are talking to a 13-year-old and you're 20, maybe you're 20, maybe you're 30, maybe you're 40 and you're still kind of young. Who knows? See, I'm st- I was like that all through my 20s. I still considered 40 basically end of life. <laughs> and so anything 40 to 80 was all the same to me. And uh, and now that I'm very close to being 40, I realize how young 40-year-olds really are. I, I'm, a, mm. I'm 28. And I think being working in politics and in politics, a young politician is about like 40 years old. And so it's sort of like that's sort of like a warp my sense of what is old. It's like an old politician is someone who's like, John John McCain, senator from Arizona, who's I think I think pushing eighty at this point. That's old. Um, young is anywhere between forty and fifty five, really. How old is too old to be in politics? Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I'm sort of I'm sort of of the opinion that people should uh, stay in as long as people will will elect them. Um, I think if it were me, I would I would probably retire around you know my 70s when i have some time just to relax but the kinds of people who are in it's sort of a selection issue right like the kinds of people who want to stay in politics that long if they didn't do politics they would probably just drop dead (laughs) i know people like that in most professions (laughs) so so what kind of topics do you generally write about i generally cover uh u.s elections um and sort of political events and everything around U.S. elections. And, and that includes kind of broader issues of national news. Um, and so right now, obviously, uh, I am pretty much 100% covering the Democratic presidential primary and the Republican presidential primary. But last year, or even better, the year before, before 
um, the elections were getting started in earnest, I spent a lot of time just covering things related to to U.S. politics. So whether that is um, economic policy, uh, I wrote a bunch um, or quite a bit about uh, transportation policy in various ways. Um, whether that is, uh, questions of race and racial inequality. I, I went last year, 2014, I was in Ferguson for two weeks during, um, the whole, I guess, disturbances there. I went to Baltimore last April for the, um, protest and, and the riot there. Uh, and so I try to cover that stuff, you know, as much as possible. Um, and I, I tend to take a, uh, historical eye to things. Um, I didn't study history, but I'm a big history nerd. And so if I can kind of bring um, American history to bear on a question, um, that's sort of my first instinct. That to me is highly admirable in a journalist, especially in the digital age. I feel um, a lot of things are screamed from headlines that aren't necessarily new and taken out of context. They seem more... Um, urgent than they are. A lot of what, uh, say, is happening in the Republican side of the election right now, people talk about it being the absolute, you know, worst divide in uh, in political history, but you can go back pretty far in American politics and see some pretty, pretty nasty things said and some pretty large lies touted as campaign slogans, and how do you see all of that right now? You know, I I think that's right. I, I think that there is, in general, among people who write about politics, and for completely understandable and and you know for the most part market driven reasons, but there's a, a bias towards um, what I call presentism, that what is happening now is is the most unique or the most insert your preferred adjective, um, but the the fact of the matter is that oftentimes. Um, things in the present are an echo of things in the past and there are recurring motifs in American life and American politics that kind of pop up um, under the same kinds of, of conditions. And so I, I kind of see, see it as my, as my job as the kind of journalist I am to um, highlight those motifs and try to uh, show not in a, you know, don't, you shouldn't care about this because it's happened before way, but but to say that this kind of thing has happened before and here's what, what we learned and here's what we can learn from what happened in the past. Um, and here's how that can, that should, or that should guide us, illustrate, um, the current events. Uh, I'll say in that there is sort of the opposite danger that you kind of end up missing what is unique about the present. Um, and so I, th this has basically been my, uh, flaw challenge with regard to the Republican race because, you know, I can point to many different uh, antecedents for someone like Donald Trump or someone like Ted Cruz, and I can point to many different Republican primaries and say, you know, this is how things generally happened. Um, here's how it worked out, and here's what we should expect going forward. And that approach has completely failed me this time around. Um <laughs> I can definitely still point to antecedents for various people, but in terms of how sort of the party reacts, how voters react, um, it's been 
unpredictable and I'm sort of at a place where I'm no longer making predictions, just kind of seeing what happens. Uh, and so I, if I had to criticize myself a bit, I'd say I have a real, I have, I have a real tendency to want to discount the novel, um, which, which is a problem when some things are actually genuinely novel. So is that exciting for you now? It is. Um, uh, it, it's exciting to watch uh, things happen that I would have never anticipated happening. I would have never guessed, for example, that um, a self-described socialist would be doing this well in an, an American <laughs> election. Uh, uh, you know, I would have not guessed that a reality TV star would be on the verge of winning a couple primaries, possibly a nomination. Um, I'll, I'll say the things that I like most about the job are uh, the traveling and, and meeting people. So, you know, next week I'll be in Iowa and I'll be in New Hampshire after that and South Carolina after that and kind of just following the pattern, the path of the primaries. And that's fun. Um, it's sort of it's uh, it puts things in, I think, useful and important contexts. I think it's easy as an observer to look at. Uh, something like the popularity of Donald Trump and kind of be bewildered at why people would support him. Um, and so actually talking to people who support him and who don't support him uh, is a, is is clarifying and helps you um, figure things out. And also usefully to see that like the people who support these various candidates are just people. They're not like monsters. I'm on either side. If you think Hillary Clinton is a monster, her supporters are not monsters. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's, I don't know, I find it useful to, to, to really try to humanize, uh, the people involved in politics at all levels because they are just ultimately people. See, I appreciate that. Um, especially because my favorite movies, uh, my, my favorite movie characters are often gray areas. They're not good or evil. Uh, you know, they play a protagonist, but they have, you know, things about them that, were they presented in a certain light, you would consider them monsters. And, uh, and I see the, the same in politics, although there's this demagoguery uh, that people represent themselves as monsters. And in the case right now of Trump and to some extent Cruz, I feel like they are presenting themselves in a far more uh, bombastic light than they really would govern as uh, kind of posturing. Right, right. And to attract a group of voters that <laughs> hasn't been reached and for good reason in the past. Right. It it's 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 interesting because I think it's like to say to say that most people involved in politics aren't terrible, um isn't to say that there aren't people in politics who kinda are. And you know, I think it's I think it's one of those kind of like by the you know by by their fruits you'll, you should you shall know them kind of things, so a guy like a guy like Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, yeah, is um, I disagree with Marco Rubio on on most things, but sort of you can look at you can look at his rhetoric, you can look at what he's doing, you can say this is a guy who's basically in this for the right reasons, and you just disagree with him. That's really that's really about it. Don't not I'm not a conservative. Um, he is, and that there there you go. Um, someone like Trump, I think, is different. 
I, I kind of read Trump as very much an opportunist. Um, he is doesn't really believe anything. Um, <laughs> Given his past uh, campaign support, uh, I would say that's very true. Right. And so that's that's like a different I mean, that that's what I in insofar that I'm willing. I'm very much willing and uh, able to be, I think, understanding and empathetic towards people who support Trump. But as for Trump himself, uh, he he does strike me as a demagogue and someone who you don't really want to be as popular as he is. Um, and whether you know whether his popularity will amount to something is we'll find out in about a a week. Um, but yeah, and it, it's it's I'm in an interesting position as a journalist because I kind of have the I write for a magazine more or less, um, and a magazine with lots of opinion journalism, and so I kind of am free to express these things either directly or in sort of my topic choice. So a couple months ago, I wrote a feature comparing Trump to, uh, to former Alabama Governor George Wallace. And it's like there are legitimate historical comparisons to make there, um, and I think I made them. But also, obviously, the fact that I would even make that comparison should tell you a bit about where I would stand, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think actually is 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 a helpful, I think, bit of inside knowledge for people who consume journalism. Um, it's very rare in sort of newsy journalism the stuff that's supposed to be objective it's very rare to find someone who is um outwardly ideological or, or partisan it's just people you know most most people try to do their jobs well and that and that goes for journalists most journalists they're trying to do their jobs the best they can but everyone has a perspective and the way that usually manifests itself in journalism it's just story selection and subject choice um, so people, someone who might be a little more conservative or very conservative might focus on a different kind of story than someone who is a little more liberal or very liberal. Um, yeah, uh, and there, the, go ahead. And the facts presented to back up an article as well. Uh, the omission of fact, whether intentional or unintentional, uh, to create a bias toward the opinion of the writer, uh, to, to omit the opposing views in any way it's it's natural you know you present the right. facts that will support the story that you're trying to write and that's how that's the way that journalism has always traditionally had bias and i think trump represents uh, a growing surge i mean the existence of fox news and msnbc uh where they're presenting information that is very biased in either direction um and i have my my faults more with one than the other, but, um, but they're presenting things that people want to hear and, and they're, uh, sequestering it, it's, they're no longer trying to be objective. Right. Right. Do you see, so you're, you're young enough that you kind of started writing at the dawn of what we'll call the digital age. And, uh, and so you probably experienced in full the transition uh, from kind of more traditional journalism to what we're doing right now, what kind of changes have you seen? Well, it's it's funny. I'm not sure. I, I'm more sort of on the on the uh, on the tail end of the transition uh, among sort of like DC based political writers, and I live in I live in DC for the present moment. Um, 
you could sort of like file lots of people into different classes. And so there's like a class of people who got into the business around 1999 or 2000. And they're very much on the cusp. Like there's still traditional print media running strong, but like the signs of collapse are there. Um, and so there are people who probably made a quicker transition in digital or a force into it. You have sort of like the next class of people who, um, had blogs and then whatnot and, and got hired on the strength of those and kind of were hired in, in the response to the collapse of print media. And then you have people like me who, by the time we're sort of getting engaged in all of this, print media is basically collapsed. Um, but also people have already kind of hired in response to that. And so it's a bit, bit of a tighter market, like the flexibility and the, um, uh, the flexibility of it all is a bit is a big is is not quite there yet, and so I've been. I mean, I'm very much like a digital. I hate this term, but a digital native journalist. Like, I don't really know what it was like before um, the internet drove everything. Before we all lived for live for the clicks, uh, which has I think. I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. The the the, the advantages or just flexibility. Like I, you know, myself and, and my friends and colleagues, we don't really feel that beholden to a particular style or approach. And so if for example, an infographic would tell a story better than just me writing a bunch, then like, that's what we're going to do. Um, if, uh, if a long feature would tell a story better than, um, you know, a series of smaller pieces and that's the choice we're going to make there's uh, the willingness to break outside of format and form um is i think the, the distinctive part of being uh in digital media and journalism um in in the current period and i think that is only getting stronger um both in both from the you know, content producing side. And so, you know, you go to a place like BuzzFeed or Vox and they have, uh, you know, teams of people devoted to doing Snapchat stories or what have you. Um, recognizing that like the important thing is to get information to people regardless of how they consume it. Um, but then sort of as well, you have, and I would count Slate as one of these publications um, who are, flattening themselves making themselves more horizontal in their structure so that you can do things quicker so that you can kind of uh act on ideas faster um i think in the most successful of the digital media organizations there's a real startup ethos um whether or not those magazines or publications are new or old and so slate is 20 years old now um but we still very much behave uh as if we're much younger uh, BuzzFeed is is much younger, um, and it's so big that it can kind of just like have internal startups. Uh, but organizationally, it's actually quite traditional. Comparing Slate to BuzzFeed seems odd to me, just uh, based on content. <laughs> well, I mean, so I, I'm I'm sort of like a bit of a BuzzFeed defender, not just because I have friends who work there. Um, <laughs> uh, they're, you know. Everyone makes fun of BuzzFeed for for listicles and and cat gifts, and that's totally fair. But they're plowing the money they make, um, getting millions of page views off listicles and and cat gifts into like really smart 
investigative journalism, um, which is something they don't have to do. They do it because they think it's important. Um, and so that's when I think, but when I think BuzzFeed, I'm thinking sort of like all of their reporters who are doing really interesting work covering um, a whole range of stories, not so much the cat gifts. Your, which are your defense is successful. I, I don't think I ever looked at it that way before. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's funny because it's like the traditional, like part. Of, so part of the the problem for digital media, or for media in general, is finding a way to sustain it. I mean, in the in the fifties and sixties and seventies and even into the eighties and nineties, people people didn't really buy news. I mean, it's kind of boring, frankly. <laughs> um, people bought, or rather, advertisers bought ads and. and Newspapers and TV were kind of the main the main vectors for consuming advertising, um, and that's what funded news gathering and news media. Um, but with the internet, that collapsed, um, and so publications have been looking for new ways to to raise the money to do what they have to do. And BuzzFeed is basically harkening back to the mid century when you subsidized your your news reporters with sports pages and classifieds um and entertainment sections and that kind of thing uh it's a very it's very it's a very like for as much as it relies on new things it's a very traditional approach to to doing this um news and politics is your lost leader uh and everything and you make your money on everything else sure but people have to keep coming back for something right exactly i mean that's and that's the thing the hope is that you while you're while you're going through um, photos of silly dogs, uh, you also catch the big story on a police brutality case. Yeah, well, and that makes sense. It, I mean, a lot of businesses, and I would say BuzzFeed fits into this category. Um, they rely on like Facebook-driven and Twitter-driven hits on viral articles, and and so then the news does become secondary to the listicle, but the listicle drove the eyeballs. However, they're not necessarily eyeballs that are going to subscribe or uh, become regular viewers until the next time that, you know, in, uh, intriguing, viral, hilarious GIF comes up on, I'm sorry, GIF comes up on, uh, you know, on their Twitter feed or whatever. Um, I see Slate as something more that people will go to the homepage on a regular basis and see what's happening. But maybe I have a skewed perspective. No, that's 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 true in our case. We still get Slate still gets a good portion of its traffic from direct homepage views. Um it's sort of like in order, it's like Facebook and then I think and then I think uh Twitter and other like sideways traffic and then um the homepage is up there. Uh which is why we spend like a lot of time kind of crafting and, and tweaking the homepage. Uh, but it's incre it's incre it's increasingly less important. Like the goal is mainly just to get people to read the stories and so however how however you can do that. Um it's interesting most... to me that for as many years as the internet has been doing this now, uh when when you look at it in internet years, w w no one's quite figured out the formula for the ultimate homepage that delivers content and advertising perfectly. Uh, it's, everyone's tweaking all the time. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, and and I think I mean I think that's good. I think it's I think it's healthy to kind of maintain 
a spirit of, of experimentation in these things. I myself, you know, do as much as I can to kind of like be multimodal to with my sort of internet use. And so I write and then like I use Twitter a lot. Um, I, I use Facebook quite a bit, um, Instagram. So I try. Not always <laughs> successful. Um, I still don't really get Snapchat. Like I, I it's it's sort of like it's like wow, I'm I am just like this is a different generation of internet for me. Like it does not make any sense to me. Uh but I'm and it t- might just be go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm ten years older than you and Snapchat makes zero sense to me. <laughs> like Instagram makes sense to me, like very much so, because it's sort of in a sense like not that much different from Twitter. Right. It's sort of like with Twitter I'm trying to compose like a good tweet. With Instagram, for me at least, it's like very much about trying to compose a good photo. Um but Snapchat is just like something entirely different. Like artistry doesn't matter really, or like this what it is to be artistic on Snapchat is like different and less traditional. And so it's just I'm bewildered by it. And I haven't even I I've tried to use it, but I've just kind of given up at this point. So speaking of multimodal, you uh you also are a uh I would say full-time uh photography hobbyist do you do professional photography as well not published i have a couple photos out there in the world that have been published but and i do portraits for my friends when they need them for work and stuff um but mostly it's just it's it's a it's a it's just i'm a hobbyist which is good and bad it's good in that like i don't really feel pressure like it's just it's something i do to re- relax more than anything um it's bad in that it uh it's really encouraged me to get sort of like kind of hipstery about it <laughs> so it's like i own this is like a it's like a whole weird journey so like I, my first camera that i own myself was a uh, a pentax kx which was like a 2006 or seven era entry level DSLR. Um, it's a fine camera. It's actually like it's, it's small. It's compact. It's uses all. It's a the lens mount is good for pretty much everything Pentax ever made. It's like actually a really great camera. Uh, and I had that for some years, and I bought sort of a more. I guess like. I guess the marketing term prosumer style camera. Um, and that was fine. Uh, but then I was like, hey, you know what? I'm getting kind of bored with SLRs. Let me, or or digital photography, let me shoot some film. And so my fiance's mom, who owns a lot of film cameras, um, lent me one of hers. And then I was like, this is great. Um, <laughs> and so, but I was like, this is great. It's also kind of a hassle because like, I got to send out the film to get developed. I don't feel like sending up a dark room in my tiny apartment. Um, <laughs> So let me let me find a digital camera that replicates kind of the 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 fiddliness of film, uh, and so I bought uh, one of the one of the Fuji X one hundreds, I think the latest version of that camera, and I, I used that for like a while, and I love that camera; it's a great camera. But eventually, after like six months of using it, I was like, so I'm like shooting this film style camera, and then editing in Lightroom with film filters why don't i just like (laughs) shoot film and so i'm back to sort of like shooting film full-time um with like a variety of cameras 
uh, and because it's like I don't, I don't, I have no obligations anymore with this. With this, I'm kind of just indulging my worst habits about collecting things I don't need. <laughs> um, so here's a two part question: yeah. How many cameras do you own? Um, as of now, I sold one, thankfully. So <laughs> I own one. I sold one, and then I got one. My parents had like an old. <laughs> SLR in their basement that I took and got refurbished. Um, so I have one, two, three, four, six. Okay. And how many do you use regularly? I use three of them regularly. All right. That's fair. Um, yeah, yeah. Given like, the progression. Right, right, right. And so, like, one of them, so, like, the X100... I basically told my fiance she can use it. I mean, if I decide that like I want to consolidate or something, like I'm gonna sell it or whatever. But for now, it's it's basically hers. The uh, the uh, um, uh, more heavy duty Pentax SLR uh, and the collection of lenses are basically my work cameras. So when I'm on the trail and I like to shoot on the trail. I use those because they, they they have uh, a 35 millimeter equivalent lens, a 50 millimeter, and like a 85 millimeter equivalent lens. So it's a nice sort of range of focal length. Yeah. Um, and and so I use that for work. Then I have two or I guess three 35 millimeter cameras. One I don't use. One's a point and shoot that I can just like use when I'm at parties. They can put it in my back pocket, and Isn't I'm like that, that guy who has. Yeah, but it's like way more fun to have like a thirty-five millimeter camera, and you take it out, and people are like, "What the hell is that?" And you're like, "Oh, it's 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 a camera with like actual film in it." So it's an icebreaker, um, conversation starter. It totally is a conversation starter. <laughs> uh, and then I have I have a a, a, a rangefinder, thirty-five millimeter rangefinder that I use as like my everyday camera, um, and then a medium format camera that I use on weekends when I'm kind of just being a bit more deliberate. And probably for uh, uh, portrait shoots. Yes, for definitely for portrait shoots. Huh. Um, usually, when I do portraits for friends, I'll do digital ones just so they can use them immediately, and then take um, film ones too, uh, so they can have for you know just something nice. So, have you ever worked in an actual darkroom? I haven't, though. As soon as this campaign is over, I'm. Uh, taking a uh, darkroom class for the nearby studio. Um, I think and, you'll enjoy uh, it. I think I, I think I will too. And there's the plan is to take the classes, kind of just like get comfortable and start developing my black and white stuff myself. Um, it, it's fun. It really is. It's very relaxing. And, and, and it's fun because most of the metaphors in these digital photo apps from Aperture through Instagram most of them are metaphors for actual darkroom techniques. And once you learn the techniques, it changes the way you see the filters. Especially with things like dodging and burning and tinting. Interesting. Yeah. I think I, I, I spent a lot of... My first camera was a, a Canon 35mm from 1960-something. And I shot all black and white. And my dad set up a dark room in the basement and i spent hours just <laughs> just developing <laughs> mostly bad pictures but once in a while a gem and yeah it's it's expensive though 
Yeah, I mean the it's um it is expensive and I've kind of I've kind of like had to adjust my like very I basically stopped playing video games to finance photography. Um That's fair. Yeah, it's sort of like I had I I can do one or the other and I'm going to go photography. I'll say the thing I like about shooting film is is I it makes me a little more detached from my photos cuz I don't I maybe send stuff in for developing once a month. So by the time I get it back, uh, I'm totally okay with being like, okay, these are bad photos. These are bad. That's good. Most Except for every bad. time you click, you feel like, uh, I just spent money on that <laughs> shot, and now I only have so many shots left before I have to stop this roll. And I found when I first got my digital, my first digital camera, it was a huge freeing moment because all of a sudden I could do like burst shots and, and just click left and right and then just quickly sift through and find the good ones where I never would have been able to afford to do that on film. That's true. Um, I, I think for, I think for me, like the, the consequence of knowing that like, you know, so like for with the medium format stuff, uh, I, I, I have a, I just have a, a six four five camera. And so I have, like 15 exposures per, per roll, which ends up being like, like 90 cents, uh, a shot. So it's like, all right, I got, you know, I got, a uh, about $14, uh, I'm going to spend this developed. So let's, uh, let's make sure every shot really counts. And so I end up shooting much less, um, but more conscientiously. Than, you know, right. Right. Even with the 35 millimeter stuff, like shooting, much less really going for one or two shots at most and, and moving on. Um, and also becoming much more tolerant of imperfections in photos. I think part of the thing about digital is because you know there's no marginal cost to each shot. Um, it's sort of like, well, this one isn't exactly the way I want it, so let me work on getting it exactly the way I want it. Whereas I've taken plenty of film shots where, like, you know, it's good. Something's a little blurry, something's a little off. Like, I'll keep it. It's fine. It looks it looks kind of cool. Um, <laughs> doesn't bother me too much. All so. right. This week's episode of Systematic is brought to you by 1Password. You know how it goes. You're creating yet another account on yet another website, and you freeze, knowing it's a bad idea to rely on the same password you've used on a dozen other sites. But wait, you've got a system. You'll just jumble the site name, add some personal flair, and voila. Except they don't like your password, so now you've got to figure out something else. Is it going to work? Are you going to remember which one of the five you tried finally stuck? Wouldn't it be so much easier if you just didn't have to think about it ever again? Your days of worrying and stressing and agonizing and forgetting and password resetting are over thanks to 1Password. You can use the strong password generator to create long, strong, unique passwords everywhere you need them and automatically save them and then log into websites with a single click of your mouse or a couple of taps with your finger. And 1Password doesn't stop there. You can keep track of all sorts of information, addresses, credit cards, bank accounts, passport details, and even free-form text all together and all behind the 1Password only you know. Now it's easier than ever to share your most sensitive information thanks to 1Password families. No more shouting the Netflix password across the room at your kids, frenzied calls from the house sitter after they forget the alarm code, or frustration because your partner is the only one who can make the credit card payment. 1Password has been a trusted name for almost 10 years. Trust the software, trust the people who make it. 
a world-class customer team, which includes developers, co-founders, everyone in the company, is available to help you seven days a week in forums, by email, and on Twitter and on Facebook. I personally use 1Password all the time, every day, on both my iPhone and my Mac, and I couldn't live without it. And I've gotten to know the team over the years, and they are excellent to work with, and they are some of the smartest people I've ever met. So remember, the best way to protect yourself online is to use a unique, sophisticated password for each website, and the best way to do that is to use 1Password. Not the same password everywhere, 1Password by Agile Bits. Find out more at onepassword.com slash systematic. That's the number one password.com. Well then, that brings us to our top three picks. And uh, these go round robin, one at a time, back and forth, and you get to start. Okay, um, so my first is a movie that I watched. Um, I watched a lot of movies. I think I watched like 115 last year. Uh, that and... is excessive, yes. <laughs> It's it's yeah I I don't have cable so I gotta watch something, <laughs> um, so I watched it's on Netflix it's Beast um, Beast of Donation, uh, and I which I think is now more famous for the fact that uh, Idris Elba didn't get a supporting actor nomination than the film itself, but the film itself which was directed by uh, the guy who directed the first season of True Detective, is really terrific. Um, it's beautifully shot, which if you watch that first season, True Detective shouldn't be much of a surprise. Um, but uh, it's not, it's not just sort of like it's not just like pretty, but it's sort of the each the lighting and the camera motion, sort of like each decision it means something. It 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 the 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 cinematography is advancing the story as much as anything else is. Um, and so it's very much it's a very visual film. It's a kind of movie that rewards a close watch and a close look uh and the 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 acting and then the sort of principal actor is a kid and i forget his name but he's a brand he's new to acting um is great he he steals the movie he's incredibly compelling um and Idris elba of course is is fantastic as sort of the um child soldier commander um but yeah People should watch it. I don't know that many people who have, but it really is. Uh, it I saw. I watched it this past week. But of of the stuff that came out in 2015, I think it does rank among the best. Say the name of it again. Beast of No Nation. Uh, beast plural or singular? Beast plural. I think. I'm not finding it on IMDb. So, yeah, that's. Yeah, be it's beast. It's beast plural. I will have to look harder for that. Uh, it sounds... Oh, here it is. Okay, yeah. I don't think I've even heard of this one before. And I I love movies, so... That will go on my list. Especially movies that are on Netflix. Oh, yeah. No, it's like it's like <laughs> a... It's, it's, it's a fantastic movie that also happens to be on Netflix, which is not always... <laughs> not always the case for Netflix. There's one I've been waiting for, uh, or waiting to watch, uh, called, I think, White God. White God is great. Yeah, it looks good. Um, yeah, White God, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll like that. White God is, is great. All right. Adding it to my, uh, show notes in my, <laughs> and adding Beasts of No Nation to the, uh, Netflix queue. All right. Um, so my first pick 
now that you're not gaming anymore, you won't care as much. But uh, there was an old game came out with, I think it was on one of the first two iPhones called Space Team. And it's uh, it's a multiplayer game over, I think the original was Bluetooth. Uh, but you can connect over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. And each person gets a different screen with a bunch of contro- controls with ridiculous names. Oh, yeah, I remember this. <laughs> and you, you have to verbally communicate to everyone else on the team uh, something that needs to be done, but you don't know who will have the button. Right. And it all is on a short timer, and people will be telling you to do things at the same time you're trying to tell them to do things, and it quickly becomes a raucous yelling match. Uh, but almost always in good fun. I've never gotten like angry or frustrated with this game. It's always hilarious. And it's now available on Apple TV, which is just great for parties. Wait, so on Apple TV, is it does it work that one person has the TV as a screen and then other people are using their phones? You have all on the. You can go either way. Um, I think I think there's a mode where you can use the TV remote and play an on-screen player, but it's easier I found to just have everyone on their own devices and let the screen kind of tally up. Uh, it'll show you like when uh, uh, asteroid belts are hit and, um, and when you're first logging in, it'll show all the players in their, uh, their waiting room and they beam up from there. It just makes a good um, central location for a game. That's still best on iPhone. Like you can play it on iPad too, but iPhones are perfect for it. At least my six plus is. Maybe uh, I might I might have to because I totally forgot this game existed and I feel like especially in the right now when we're still stuck in our apartment because of all the snow, <laughs> um, it might be exactly the kind of thing uh, we need to not go crazy. Did uh, did DC get a lot of snow? We got uh, like twenty inches. I live in Minnesota, <laughs> and we got we got none. We got, we got, we got one inch over the weekend. So, but. Usually March lends us uh, 30 inches, and fortunately that melts quickly enough that it's not a huge strain on the infrastructure. That's what I worry about with the East Coast is <laughs> if you get another dump like that, you're not going to have any place to put it. Right, right. I mean, that's 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 the big thing. It's like there's no place to put it. The it's one of so I don't I I own like one pair of good boots for like inclement weather and they're basically good for rain and I know I should own snow boots like I know logically that I should just buy a pair of snow boots but because the odds of getting a heavy snowfall every year are sort of variable it's like ah I got better things to spend a hundred bucks on <laughs> I have lived in snow for years and I can tell you that a pair of waterproof sneakers is sufficient unless you're stranded in the snow and hiking through like 30 inches for a mile or more. But for, for everyday purposes, waterproof sneakers and a windproof jacket and windproof to me is more important than like heavy down or heavy wool. As long as it can keep out biting below zero winds, a hat to cover your ears. And then a pair of uh, lately I've been using neoprene with uh, the iPhone uh, compa- like little dots so you can actually use your phone with your gloves on but that's pretty much my winter standard outfit and i pick up all the pieces for maybe a total of a hundred dollars instead of you know a hundred dollar carhartt jacket and a hundred dollar pair of boots and 
That can get expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you move to Minnesota, I'll I'll help you outfit. But hopefully, hopefully you won't see too many more 20-inch to 30-inch snows. Yeah, I don't don't think we will. I think this was the big one, and then it's going to be clear from from here on out good luck (laughs) all right so what's your second pick uh my second pick is um a book i am reading and it's not it's not a uh new book or anything it's actually pretty old but it's a new interest for me so um here we go and that is uh citizens by uh i think it's simon shama but it might not be simon it might be an accented name and i'm just not even gonna try but it is his uh, big comprehensive history of the French Revolution and specifically uh, of his sort of idea is that the French Revolution was um, the crucible for creating sort of the conception of, of the citizen um, or at least one conception of the citizen as opposed to a subject or or something else. Um, I, I think – I, before this, I read the Oxford history of the French Revolution, and I'm reading a couple other books that are kind of adjacent to the French Revolution in terms of what they cover. And I just find the whole period fascinating because it's not something I ever learned about in high school or, or college in any serious way. And it is simultaneously kind of inspiring and absolutely insane um, and kind of, I don't know, it's, 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 it is kind of the one of the, the French Revolution and sort of everything it encompasses is like the seminal event or one of the seminal events of Western history. And it's just been fun uh, learning about it. That's yeah, that would be of interest to me. That's an area that I know mostly from musicals. <laughs> <laughs> like I love history and, and I studied a lot, like all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, um, kind of the history of politics. That's always been fascinating to me, but the French revolution is uh it's kind of a weak spot for me. Yeah, I think it's a weak spot for a lot of Americans in particular because it's just like it's it's all happening at the same time, especially in terms of studying in school as our revolution or at least right after. Um, and, you know, Americans at the time of the French Revolution were writing the Constitution and doing all of that. And so that's what our history focuses on. But like the rest of Europe um, was definitely looking at this at the at the collapse of France and the emergence of this. Uh, you know, aggressive expansionist um, revolutionary power. Uh, and, you know, it's it's important. <laughs> but more than important, it's actually it's fun. It's like a fun period of history to, to, to read about and cover. Um, and uh, it's, it's worth it's, – Citizens is like a tome, but it's really worth your time. The Oxford history is probably sh- – it's shorter and uh, I think uh, a little more comprehensive. But it's, uh, it's also much drier. Um, and and kind of a, I wouldn't say a snooze, but it's the kind of thing that you read like fifty pages at a time. You're like, okay, I'm good for I'm good for the next couple of days. Nice. All right. So I'm I'm curious about your opinion about my second pick. Um, on my Apple TV, I have an app called Writers Writers News, and uh, I had originally had it on my phone. And the TV version, you can choose ten, fifteen, or thirty minute news blasts. And it gives you the latest like AP news stories. And they are, they're very objective as far as telling a level story with nothing but facts. And like we said before, you can always omit facts for spin, but, but it, 
I don't know. It it's like watching BBC um or listening to NPR but with uh always like in the moment stories. I've really enjoyed it. Um that's interesting. I I I didn't I didn't even realize it was a thing that existed. Um well then, you should check it out. I think I will check it out. I still I so I have the new Apple TV and I'm sort of like I haven't really taken advantage of the fact that I can like put actual apps on it at all. Um I kind of still have kind of my standard set of of uh you know Netflix, HBO, Now, so on and so forth. Yeah. And I mean basically the reason I bought it is because a mine was basically like shutting down at a random, which I think yeah. is not an uncommon problem. Nope, I've had that um, with three different ones. <laughs> And uh, the Siri thing um, is actually really great and uh, facilitates my laziness, so I'm, I'm all for it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I should I should actually try to investigate this whole sort of like real apps thing um, because I haven't I haven't at all. See, to me, it's not laziness to be annoyed that you have to drill all the way out to a main menu, drill into another app, get to the show you want, and then if you want to go back, repeat the same process. And yes, that has yeah. always driven me nuts. And to be able to double click a button now and flip between like Hulu and Netflix and then be able to just say the name of a show and find out which different channels have it. And I, I absolutely I adore it. I don't consider it uh, lazy to do it the other way. I consider it uh, asinine that we ever had to do it the other way. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I've explored the entire Apple TV app store. Looking forward to uh, more, but uh, all right. So your third pick, my third pick, uh, my third pick is is not electronic, uh, or I mean, I guess the gadget in in some broad sense. But so I cook a lot, um, and I bake a lot, and uh, my favorite thing to bake uh, are pies, um, either. Dessert pies um, or, you know, quiches or whatever, any kind of pie. I'm a big fan of putting things into crust. <laughs> uh, uh, and so for the longest time, I just used my food processor for making pie crust. But the problem with the food processor for using pie crust, for making pie crust, is that it actually cuts the butter too tiny. Um, and so this is fine for rolling out a pie crust. It actually makes it probably a little easier, but for actually baking, it's not great for flakiness. What makes a flaky pie crust are large. Um, I mean, literally flakes of butter. Uh, and the only way you can get large flakes of butter is by kind of cutting the butter into the flour sufficiently small, but not too small. Um, you can do that with your hands, but your hands get warm um, and that, that melts the butter and that's not good. You can use two knives, but that's extremely tedious. And so I finally just bought a, a very nice pastry cutter, um, which is a handle and then, you know, two uh, handle extends into uh, a piece of metal with like three, not, not blades or anything, but kind of just three flat edges that you can use. And it's all curved. You can kind of just like use to... Um, cut butter into flour in a bowl. And it has revolutionized my pie crust making. Like, uh, I make pie crust just as quickly as I could with a, with a food processor, like beginning to end, 15 minutes to make a pie crust. Um, and uh, I get the right 
size butter chunks and it's the right uh the right sort of it's not texture isn't the word I'm looking for, but the the right it looks the right way when I eventually roll it out. It's been it's been great. And so um we've been eating a lot more pie than usual. Uh <laughs> it's so easy for better now. Or worse. For better or for worse. But it's it's just it's much easier to just if I'm like, oh, I I think I'm gonna make a quiche tonight, I can just very quickly make a pie crust, let it chill, roll it out and and make that quiche. Nice. I've just been getting heavily into cooking lately, uh, or recently, and uh, I have found buying new tools, like buying the tool you need, the one that uh, will change how you make your favorite recipe, is a very satisfying experience. Yes. Even if they're small. I finally got a bench knife for making pasta, and it is so much better than trying to use a butter knife for (laughs) my bare fingers. Right, it's so much. It's so much. I, I find that with um, with cooking, it's not so much like big gadgets. Cause I don't really, I don't really own any of that stuff. I have a couple pots, a couple pans, a big cast iron, have a Dutch oven. But it, it's more sort of like I got a really quality chef's knife and yeah. like a really good cutting board and um, a variety really, of um, whisk sizes. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, the right kind of wooden spoon, like it's that, it's stuff, it's stuff like that that kind of like reduces, reduces like friction and things you do a lot, yeah. Um, rather than a thing that makes like a single thing easier. My wife has put a cap on my wooden spoon buying. I, I uh, <laughs> we have a, we have a drawer full and then an overflow drawer because I have a weird obsession with wooden spoons. But I even have wooden spatulas that are really good looking and very fragile. If you tap them too hard on the edge of a pot, you'd dent them. But same with my ceramic knives. So anyway, that's cool. You'll have to send me a link to the one you got. If you can find it on Amazon or. Sure. Yeah, I will. I'll see you. I'll look through my Amazon order, order, uh, archive. All right. So my last pick is an app I may have mentioned before, but there's a new version worthy of mention. It's called timing and it runs on a Mac and tracks your activity across all your applications. Um, And basically, at the end of the day, it's not only good for, say, billing projects. uh, If you need to go back and say, how long was I working in this app on this file? Uh, But it's also good just for getting an overview of how you're spending your time in case you want to make behavior modifications. Um, And you can see a list of every app you've worked in, and then you can break each app into categories or projects. And you can even go so far as to say files in this directory are part of this project or websites from this URL are part of this activity and, uh, and then break down uh, your graphs based on that. And it is, it's highly effective. It runs very quietly in the background. Uh, It doesn't take up much processor and it can even track like what directories you're in in terminal if you know you're coding um yeah overall i have been really impressed the latest version has uh quite a few uh interface and uh aesthetic improvements so i would recommend that to anyone i i use uh timing and i wasn't aware that there's a new version 1.6 is the latest it, I'm a little behind on mentioning it. It's actually, I think it came out in December. And by the time this comes out, that'll be two months ago. So <laughs> I'm slow, but 
but 1.6 was a big update for it. Nice. Yeah, no, um, I, 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 I often forget that I have it running and then I, re- I remember and I'm like, oh yeah, I have this. It's kind of nice though, because then you have all that data collected. Right. And let me, let me see how much time I've spent on Twitter. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> not good. I should stop that. <laughs> yep. I have a few websites like that. Twitter, Facebook. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, you can be found on Twitter at jbuie, J-B-O-U-I-E. And you can also find uh, Jamel at jamelbuie.net. Um, do you have a, a more, uh, or do you have anywhere else you would like to link? I suppose yeah, I could link your Slate profile. Yeah, that, that'd be the, the only other thing, um, my Slate profile. And if you follow me on Twitter, I, I tweet out my stories. Not like excessively, usually once or twice. Um, my Twitter is much more uh, a chance for me to make jokes than it is <laughs> to to share professional work. But I do share my work there. Um, and jamelbuoy.net is sort of like general information and also like photography. Nice. Um, yeah. You do some provocation on Twitter, if I recall. Yeah, I do. And I'm trying to do less of that. Um, cause it's all, cause I'm just like, I feel like I should just tweet something to the effect of all, most of these are jokes. None of this should be taken too seriously. And then make that like a pin tweet for anyone who shows up. Like it won't matter if you mention someone and they take offense to it, a war will ensue. Yes. They're not yes. going to go check your pin tweets to see if you're kidding. All right. And I am TT scoff everywhere. You can find me at brettterpstra.com. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. Oh, and and uh, follow over not, – not over time. This is Systematic. You can follow Systematic on Twitter at SYSTMcast, SystemCast. And uh, go leave iTunes reviews. And thank you very much for being here, Jamal. Thank you again for having me. I hope your uh, your travels next week are fun and productive. Yeah, so I think by the time people listen, I will have already traveled um, and uh, will already know quite a bit about this election. So We'll have to have you back on. Uh, we'll bring you on Overtire and we can talk about personal feelings about the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again to PDF Pen 7 and 1Password for sponsoring this episode. And we'll see everybody in a couple weeks. Yeah.